1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders lay their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on, the re and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Preaching through a book means that sometimes I come to passages where I've already preached them. And uh, this is one of those passages. I, I previously preached sermons from this passage. Uh, in 2017, 2020, and even last year, 2023. Uh, one of those sermons was focused on church leadership, appropriate for the passage. One of them was a, a sermon directed to our high school graduates on graduation Sunday. And one of them was uh, dealing with deacons in their service among us. Certainly a faithful passage, and I, I have no problem coming back to it. It's one worthy of our attention over and over again. But as I come to this passage today in the context of preaching through 1 Timothy, I am more aware of how this passage relates to the entire letter. Now, the entire letter of 1 Timothy is focusing on the church, its proper order, and how it is to, to function and be. And chapter 4 it is in that same vein. It's not disconnected from that. The previous chapter, chapter 3, was mainly, mostly focused on the proper order and responsibilities of overseers and deacons. This chapter is directed at detecting and confronting demonic lies and false teaching. And I'm going to make the case that both of those are related to the whole ministry well-functioning of the church. These instructions are indeed focused to Timothy in, and related to his pastoral duties there at the church. And at first reading, it may seem that verses 6 through 16 are only directed to and only relate to overseers and to the those who are responsible for the leadership of preaching and the teaching ministry of the church. But I want you to hear this morning that I think these words, though they are directed to, addressed to Timothy and his responsibility, I think these words have weight to all of us because they, they teach what is the proper order of the, the, what does the leader do? What is he charged with? And by relationship, what should the church love and celebrate and desire when we gather as the church? When I was preaching from 1 Timothy chapter 3, to, uh, verses 14 through 16, I said in that sermon that it would be a gross misunderstanding to read that, 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 uh, those verses and conclude that they were instructions, that those instructions do not apply to you as a church member. You may not be an overseer. You, you may not be a deacon. You, particularly to, related to this passage, you may not be responsible for the preaching, teaching ministry of the church or the public gathering of the church. However, every church member must be invested and engaged 
in pursuing faithful, the faithful ordering of the church. And whoever you are, if you're a member of this church, you should be highly concerned with when we gather together in, an, in, our, in our public assembly of a church, are we doing so faithful to Scripture? Now, like talking with elders, the instructions to elders and deacons, what typically happens is there's always a, a natural bent toward drifting away. So you, you start with a biblical model, and then over time you add elements that may, were help, may be helpful at, at one particular time, and then those elements take on a life of their own. And maybe you, you turn around one day and you realize you've gone far beyond what the biblical order is. And so when we think about gathering as a church and, and what we do in the preaching ministry and the teaching ministry and the public gathering ministry of the church, we constantly need to go back to Scripture and look what the model of Scripture is and make sure we're being faithful to it. These instructions are directed to the overseer, but I, but I believe they are for the blessing of the entire church. Three areas the church should give attention to from this passage. What should be honored and celebrated in the leadership of the overseers? In other words, what do you want? What, do you should, what should you biblically desire that the overseers give their attention to? Secondly, what, a, a, a testimony of holy living. So how should we live in such a way that testifies to the gospel within us? And then thirdly, instructions for proper individual and corporate worship and devotion. So to that end, I, I want to divide this passage. There's a lot here. But I want to divide the passage in these ways. I want to talk about how good training produces good servants for the church. And we ought to celebrate and pursue good training. Secondly, that we ought to pursue high standards in a cultural context that is diminishing standards of any kind. The church must pursue high standards of holiness. And then lastly, what does profitable devotion look like as individuals? But also as a church, when we gather together, what does it, what does it look like? What should it look like as we gather together uh, and, and, and worship together? Let's begin with good training produces good servants. I, I would just point you back to, to verse 6 where Paul says, if you put these things before the brothers. Now, that's pointing back up to what he's just talked about in verses 1 through 5. And he says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of good doctrine that you have followed. Good training produces good servants. Paul is instructing Timothy to be continually training in God's word. So verse 6 connects the instructions of verses 4 through 5 with the responsibility of the overseer to keep watch over the church. He says, put these things before the brothers. He means that is an instruction that, that Timothy should teach God's word faithfully, confronting the demonic lies, um, teaching the truth that exposes those lies. So he's just, he's in verses one through three, he laid out the, the, the threat of demonic lies. And then four and five, he talked about how to respond to that. Verse six, he says, now a good servant will put these things before the brothers. And then he moves on to how that is done. And it is done by being trained in God's word. And he, the, word, the, the, the phrase that Paul uses is words of the faith. And it's interesting here, the word that is translated as trained in this verse means to provide instruction and training with the implication of skill in some area or knowledge. But, but it, it also, its root word comes from the word that means to be nourished to train up or to be nourished upon, to feed upon. And the word is, in a, present ten, is a present tense verb, which means it is an action that is currently going on and habitually continues. So this is not past tense. It's not a limited time. This is something that the servant of God must continually be about, being trained in the word of God. Those who are good servants of the church are those who have been trained, or not those who have had been trained or were trained, but those who have been and continue to be trained in the Word of God. Now, listen, that may seem a simple thing, but here's the point. Those who are to be good servants of, of Christ in the church never come to a place where they're finished 
being trained and studying and knowing the Word of God. In my records of all the times that I have preached or had the opportunity to teach God's Word, I looked this week, and the earliest record I have is 34 years ago in April of 1990. It was a youth event, and I preached from Jeremiah chapters 8 and 9. Now, I don't remember what I said in that meeting. I don't remember anything that came out of that meeting. I don't really remember any details about that meeting other than it's on my, in my records that I've, that, that I've kept. But I have some assumptions that I think are pretty safe to make. Number one, I don't think I had a whole lot to say 34 years ago. I'm rather thankful there's probably not much recording. There's not a recording of it because I probably would not be encouraged by, by, by the level of expository teaching or preaching that I was able to bring there. But, but I am confident of this. In 1990, youth event, I gave my best that I had. But I am very thankful. Listen to me. I am very thankful that where I was in the training of God's Word in 1990 is not where I am today in 2024. The, the, the idea there is that there should be a continuing reality of being trained in God's Word. You are where you are. You, you cannot be a Bible scholar that you're not today. Right? You, can't, you can't just decide and turn a switch and, and know all that you can know and, and have the, the, the blessing of years and years in God's Word. But the point is that if you're to be a good servant of Christ to the church, there must be a continuing, a, a regular training in God's Word. Brothers and sisters, there should never be a moment in your life when you stop training and growing in God's Word. Can I say that again? And I'm speaking to the Christians today. Brothers and sisters, there should never be a time in your life that, or a moment in your life when you stop training in God's Word. Grow more knowledgeable in God's Word continually. Grow more capable in communicating God's Word continually. If you're to be a servant of the church, yes, that must be true. But brothers and sisters, if you're to be a member of the church, that will be a blessing as well for you to continually being trained in God's Word. But he also says, continually trained in God's Word and continually trained in sound doctrine. The phrase that he uses, the way it's translated in the ESV is, and of good doctrine that you have followed. A good servant of Christ Jesus continually trains in God's Word and sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is the faithful summary of God's truth. Historically, the church has found it very helpful to articulate sound doctrine in things that we call creeds and confessions of faith. In recent generations, many grew uninterested and even suspicious of creeds and written documents like that, church covenants and confessions of faith. And, and this led some to reject any standard of doctrine and with what sounded like a good argument. But those who rejected Standards of doctrine would often use phrase like, phrases like this, and you may have heard them. They, they would say, I hold to no creed but the Bible. Or they may say, I, I hold to no creed but Jesus, or no creed to Christ. And in all honesty, when many of you heard that, that sounded rather spiritual, right? It sounded like what they were saying is, I'm holding up the Bible only, and I believe the Bible, none of this other stuff. Well, that seems admirable, honorable, helpful. Though these professions initially sound faithful and worthy of acceptance, they are, in fact, a rejection, a rejection of sound doctrine. It is no, it is, uh, no um, mistake, then, that every church that has adopted this model of no creed but the Bible or no creed but Christ has intentionally or unintentionally drifted into theological liberalism and most of them into heresy. Many churches that do not reject creeds and standards of faith formally have given little attention to doctrinal statements in more recent generations. And that has produced amongst the church today generations of Christians that are not well trained in sound doctrine. 
Training in God's word must be accompanied by being trained in, well-trained in sound doctrine. Training in both God's word and sound doctrine provides the tools to preach, to teach, and lead the church well while recognizing and rejecting demonic and false teachings. Good training produces good servants of Christ. Secondly, Paul then says we should pursue high standards. And, and really, he just gives a positive and a negative here. This is verses 7 through 10. He gives a negative and then a positive and then an illustration. So the negative would be reject anything that distracts from godliness. He says in verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent Silly myths. The King James Version renders verse 7 as, but refuse profane and old wives' tales. The ESV and the New American Standard render it this way, have nothing to do with worldly fables. The literal meaning of the word there, uh, it, it means to pay no attention to, to refuse to pay attention to, to avoid it in all costs, to reject God is true and his word is true. Salvation is only found in his truth. Therefore, anything that adds to or takes away from the truth must be rejected. Anything that confuses or distorts the truth must be rejected. Anything that is not faithful to the testimony of truth must be rejected. Anything that is not faithful to, the, to, to, uh, to, to God's word must be rejected. No servant of God should have any part of anything that distracts us from God's word. Anything, some, uh, anytime something other than the truth of God is practiced, it ultimately distracts and distorts the truth of God. It's why Paul wrote in the very first chapter, he says, I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that, that is by faith. In other words, part of Timothy's charge was to go to the church and put away anything that was distracting from the gospel, from God's truth, from sound doctrine. To reject something is to, act, to be actively on guard against it, recognizing the threat and intentionally protecting what is true. Brothers and sisters, have no part of anything that confuses what is true, obscures what is true, distracts from what is true, contradicts from what is true true. That's the negative. The positive is pursue what draws you to greater godliness. So have nothing to do. Ignore, reject irreverent silly myths. Rather, here's the positive, rather train yourself for godliness. In contrast to being distracted from the truth, Paul instructs Timothy to train himself for godliness. Now, the word used in verse 8, translated as trained, is a different word that is used in verse 6. You may remember in verse 6, the, word, the root word for that word was to be nourished upon. Here, Paul uses the word gymnos. The English word gymnasium comes from this word. If you do any word study on it, it's going to be a little shocking because the root word means to be nude or naked. What in the world is Paul saying here? Well, Roman athletic culture, very different from ours, praise God. And there was nudity in their athletic pursuits. But the word that that Paul is using here has the idea of disciplined in the context of like an athlete would discipline themselves for the games. The idea of physical exercise, the, the discipline that comes from denying other things so that you can pursue a goal. So the word used in this sense is of 
personal discipline, to control oneself by thorough discipline, to discipline yourself, to keep yourself disciplined, all those ideas. And the contrast is important to recognize uh, between pay no attention to myths and train yourself for godliness. Because giving attention to those things that distract from the gospel, myths and irreverent, um, uh, uh, irreverent um, myths and those sort of things, um, they, they capture your attention when you are disengaged. You see, godliness comes through intentional pursuit. You don't back your way into godliness. You don't default your way into godliness. You don't wander your way into godliness. Godliness comes from intentional pursuit. Distractions come when you're not paying attention. Godliness comes through alertness and engagement. Brothers and sisters, listen, the contrast here is do not just flutter your way into distractions, but discipline yourself like an athlete unto godliness. The sad reality is that many of you are coasting through your spiritual pursuits while paying greater attention to worldly distractions. I'm going to stir the Kool-Aid here for just a minute. Some of you, brothers and sisters, who've been saved by the blood of Jesus, are giving greater intentional pursuit and attention to things like your academic pursuits and your career. Anything wrong with academic pursuits in your career? No. But you're disciplined in that area, and yet in your spiritual walk, you're floating around without any discipline. Some of you are giving great attention to your career advancement. Some of you are giving great attention to your athletic goals. Some of you are giving tremendous attention to your hobbies and leisure activities. Anything wrong with that? Well, not in the, in the, in the abstract, but brothers and sisters, why are some of you giving more discipline to things that absolutely don't matter and no discipline at all to the pursuit of godliness? Some of you are giving great attention just to consuming entertainment. You're more disciplined to watch the show that you want to watch than you are to read the Bible of God's Word. Friends, godliness does not come by accident or chance. Godliness is gained through disciplined pursuit. So Paul gives an illustration in verses 8 through 11 of an athlete Romans celebrated public athletic contest much like we do today. And the members of the church would have been very familiar with the games and the celebrated athletes of their day. When you and I watch professional athletes, we recognize there's something different about them than us. That's part of why we like to watch them, right? They can do some things that even as hard as you try, you and I will never be able to do. And it is true that athletes may enjoy some genetic advantages that we don't enjoy. But, but you also understand that to excel and to succeed, regardless of how God made them, every athlete must devote themselves to physical training to develop the strength and skills to win the game. So they're, they're being disciplined in what they eat. They're being disciplined in their practice schedule. They're being disciplined in what they, what they do and what they don't do. High-level athletes are some of the most disciplined people around at least when it comes to their diet and their time and their pursuits. And Paul says here, everyone can enjoy some benefit from physical discipline. He says, he says in the text, he says bodily discipline, he says bodily training is of some value. Well, that's, that's clearly evident. Everyone can enjoy some benefit from physical discipline. When you eat well, if you exercise, if you stop doing things like smoking and drinking, you will be more healthy. You'll have more energy. You'll enjoy better health. However, whatever benefits you gain through physical training can be easily lost and will be eventually erased with death and age. But Paul says the glory and the goodness of training and godliness 
is that the blessings are never lost. They never fade and will have benefits and blessings in the present and in the glory to come. Brothers and sisters, here's the bottom line. Actively and intentionally discipline yourself for godliness. There's no way around this. There's no way around this. If you're to be a good servant of Christ, you must actively discipline yourself for godliness. Now, in verses 11 through 16, Paul moves his attention to some instructions. In fact, it begins in verse 11 with command and teach, the word command. Uh, and this is, these are commands for what Timothy is to do in his role as overseer. And I just want to articulate again, while these are focused on the overseer's responsibility, the relationship to the church is these are the things that the church should also pursue. In other words, the, the, the overseer isn't just to stand in the room and publicly read the scripture for his own benefit. It's for the benefit and the blessing of church. So there's a, there's a command here to the overseer and there's instructions here for the church. This is what you should honor. This is what you should celebrate. This is what you should pursue. And I would just put all of this under the heading of profitable devotion. In verse 11 and 12, he says, Command these things, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in purity, in faith, in purity. Profitable devotion begins with faithful teaching. Verse 11 introduces specific instructions for Timothy, the overseer, to lead the church to do and for the church to obey. He begins with the word command. <laughs> Interesting there, the root word of this word is angelos. And you know what that word is, angel, which means messenger. But with its prefix, it means to announce what must be done, to order or to command, to bring a message, but not just for information's sake, to bring a message with the implication that it must be obeyed. That's the idea here. Command these things and teach these things. Didasco, it simply means to provide information, uh, instruction in a, in a formal or informal way. Com con connected to this together, command and teach. Just understand that the, the overseer is not just to be an educator. If you reduce the work of teaching in the church to communicating information, we could do that in a PowerPoint emailed to you on Monday and not have to meet together on Sunday. There's something else here. There's a commandment. These are the words of God commanded to his people that must be obeyed. In other words, these are not suggestions for Timothy to the church. Timothy, the overseer, was to faithfully communicate what the church should do and faithfully teach what the church should believe. And the church was to faithfully obey and believe. There's that relationship there. The overseer was to declare. The church was to obey. These are the words of God. The church was to faithfully obey and believe, not out of blind allegiance to Timothy or to Paul, not out of mindless submission to Paul or Timothy's rule, but in response to the words of faith and sound doctrine. You see, the church is not disconnected from the words of faith and sound doctrine. The overseer was to faithfully teach it. The church was to be faithful to obey and receive it. Both were to be responsible to growing in the words of faith and sound doctrine. There is a relationship here that is often dysfunctional because of sin. So the overseer commands and teaches according to God's word and sound doctrine. That's right. The church obeys according to God's word and sound doctrine. That's right. But oftentimes because of sin, that relationship gets dysfunctional. There becomes conflict between the two. But if the church is pursuing God's word and sound doctrine and the overseer is faithfully teaching God's word and sound doctrine, those relation, that relationship between the overseer and the church ought not to be confrontational. Both have responsibilities and authorities. Both are submissive to God's word. I believe that Paul's instruction concerning Timothy's youth is connected to this relationship between overseer and church, both being under the authority of God's word. It may seem odd as you're reading through this passage, why would Paul then stop and give a word about Timothy's youth? Now, clearly Timothy was young, 
And, and, and just thinking about that, I, th- sometimes youth is just rejected outright or ignored because of inexperience. And that probably was the cultural context in which Timothy was pastoring. There was a celebration of elders and the wisdom that comes with elders. And so it may be that Timothy was being ignored or possibly rejected simply because of his age. Now, there's another reality that sometimes youth is celebrated and even even idolatized because of the energy and vitality of youth. I think that's where we are today. If somebody calls you old today, they're not paying you a compliment. (laughs) They're either making fun of you or they're in some way trying to diminish what you've just said. If if somebody says to you, well, that's that's the way it used to be done or, or any way references that it's not the present moment, they're trying to diminish whatever it is that you've just presented. Because our culture raises up youth as an idol. It's a pretty poor idol because you can't keep it even if you have it. But we idolatrize the, 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 the vigor, the, the youth, uh, the vitality of youth. I think verse 12 is rejection of both. So verse 12 is not a celebration of youth as an ideal state. Listen, I remember what it was to be 16 years old. We were talking about it in Sunday school this morning. Had a whole lot of confidence and almost no wisdom. (laughs) I was physically strong, but not mentally wise. Verse 12 is not a celebration of youth as an ideal state. Listen, if you're 16 today, you can't do anything about it, you are 16. 15 today, you're 12, you're 20. Praise God for that. But that that's, that's not an ideal state, and, and nor is this a celebration of age is automatic wisdom. Here's the brutal reality. There are 80-year-olds who are not wise. There are aged people who have not been well-trained in God's Word. So just because you've got advanced age does not necessarily mean that you've been trained in God's Word or trained in sound doctrine. I know some foolish old folks and some ungodly older folks. Verse 12 is a command for young and old alike to mature in faith. The celebration that verse 12 is pointing to is on the word, not the demographic of the individual teacher. So that's why he says in verse 12, listen, don't let them uh, diminish you because of your youth. I I think you could safely say to today, don't let folks diminish you because of your age. Whether you're old or young, But regardless of your age, let, let, uh, 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 but, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. In other words, demonstrate you're being trained and growing deep in the word of God and sound doctrine, regardless of how many years you've walked on this earth. The church must devote itself to the faithful teaching of God's word and sound doctrine not be hung up by whatever the culture celebrates. Faithful teaching. Secondly, faithful assembly. Verses 13 and 14. Now there's so much to say here. I just frankly don't have time for all of it. But verses 13 uh, and 14 are instructions concerning the public assembly of the church. If you were to ask 10 random people what a church should do when they gather, the common answers may include, well, the church has singing, congregational singing, or they, they, they may say that there's a choir or soloist, and they may say, well, the preacher's going to preach. In recent generations, the importance of music to the church has grown such that when most people today use the word worship, they don't mean preaching. They specifically mean something related to music. So if you, sometimes you'll hear people say, we're going to have a, a special night of worship. There's no preaching there. Usually it's just singing or music of some sorts. Paul instructs Timothy that, the, that he must be devoted to the public, uh, to, the, to, uh, to public scripture reading, exhortation, and preaching. Now, even though music's not listed here, that doesn't exclude it, but what Paul is saying is here are the most important, the essential elements of what must be happening when the church gathers. Now, the word public is not in the Greek text, 
but it is implied by the use of the definite article here. He uses the word devoted. That means this idea of ongoing, continuous attention to the task. And he says that Timothy ought to give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Public Scripture reading was a practice that went back to the synagogue and beyond. We read an example of it this morning from Nehemiah chapter 8. This practice was to read the Scripture and then... Uh, uh, then after the reading of the scripture, an exposition, an explanation of what the scripture meant was, was given to the hearers. And you may be tempted to think that modernity has erased the need for public reading of scripture. The reality of it is in ancient days, there was not easy access. In fact, in a community there in, in, in the synagogue days of Prior to first century, there may have been one scroll per community, even at that. And so when you came to the synagogue, that and the reading of the scroll at the synagogue was the only way to hear the Word of God. And of course, today, if you have a smartphone in your pocket, you have access to just about every translation of the Scripture in English and every other language available to you instantly and for free. Most of us, if we were to gather all the copies of Scripture that we own, we could fill a library right now. The point I'm making is that access to the Word of God is abundant, cheap, and free, and, and mostly free today. And so you may be tempted to think, well, this, uh, this, this, this teaching of public reading of Scripture is no longer as important as it was to the first century. Friends, I would say not only is that a denial of the sovereignty of God and the inspiration of Scripture, but it is also denying the created goodness of the church's gathering. There's something that happens only when the church gathers that cannot be replicated outside of the gathering of the church. If there was one good thing that came out of COVID, when everybody went home and we tried to do online services, I'm thankful for that. There are some folks watching us online right now. I'm thankful for that. But I can't tell you how many times I've had this conversation. Somebody will say, listen, I was home or I've been home for a while, not been able to attend. I've been watching on, online faithfully. And then they will say, but it's just not the same. Now, you can receive the communication. I could, you can download my notes this afternoon and read them for yourselves. Receive the information of what I'm communicating. But there's something else going on when the church gathers. There's something else happening when the church gathers that's more than just communicating words and information. God's Spirit is moving amongst us. And as a corporate body, as a, as a gathering of believers, God is moving amongst us uniquely in our gatherings that does not happen outside of this place. The defense against false teaching and the growth and growth in God's word and sound doctrine is not only a private exercise, it is also a commanded corporate exercise. When the church gathers, there must be a continual devoting to the reading of Scripture together. Doesn't sound very impressive. It doesn't necessarily excite the, the modern technology movement, but I'm just telling you, friends, God has commanded and we ought to give attention to the reading of Scripture together. And then he says exhortation. The word exhortation there is a word that means to call someone to be encouraged or consoled either by verbal or nonverbal means. It's a, it, you and I might, might connect this most closely to the preaching ministry of the church. Exhortation takes the truths of Scripture and applies them to your life. The study of God's Word is not an academic effort only, uh, with no connection to how you live. In other words, the exhortation takes God's word and presses it into your life so that you might would know how it affects how you should live out the word of God. When the church gathers, there must be exhortation to apply God's word to your life in real and practical ways. Sometimes that will take the form of rebuke. Don't be afraid of rebuke. Rebuke is just simply saying, your life does not match up with the commands of Scripture. Sometimes it, it, it takes a form of warning. Dear brothers and sisters, be warned, be careful. Here is a spiritual danger that many of you are in danger of. Sometimes it takes the, the, the form of counsel. 
This is wise and helpful. This is what you should do. Sometimes it takes the form of comfort. Do not be afraid. Be of good courage. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Exhortation is not secular counsel or platitudes. Exhortation is pressing, thus saith the Lord, to, the, to bind the conscience, the heart, and the minds of believers. Read Scripture, exhort, bring exhortation, and then he, he uses the word teaching again. The same word, didasco, again. This is just as a place in the public gathering of the church and every other type of gathering, individual or small group of the church. That is to teach to, and give systematic explanation of God's word. This is why an overseer must be able to teach from chapter 3, verse 2. This is why it's important for you, friends, to be a part of the teaching ministry of the church. Just that systematic explanation of what the Word of God means. And then lastly, in verse 15 and 16, Paul again turns his attention to the living of the overseer, to Timothy's example before the church, and he says, practice these things, immerse yourself in them. So these things he's just said that should be done publicly for the church so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this for by doing so, for, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Verse 15 is another command to continually be devoted and engaged with training for godliness. The word there that is translated as practice means to um, to, be, to, continually, to continue to perform uh, an activity, to, to, to grow in that activity. It's a word that we use for professions like the medical profession. Your doctor practices medicine, and you hope they are continually developing their skills and growing in their efforts. The overseer practices these things not only for personal benefit, but also as a testimony for others to follow. This is, um, this is the sense in which Paul often gave instructions to the church. So one of the things that Paul says over and over again throughout his letters is imitate me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, I urge you, then be imitators of me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5, he says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. To the Philippians, he wrote, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have uh, you have in us. Now, what Paul is not saying is that he's perfect. And neither is he saying that Timothy is perfect. But what he is saying is, I'm chasing after the Father. I'm pursuing dis discipline in God's Word and in sound doctrine. And so it's right to say to the brothers and sisters in the church, imitate me as I chase after God and His Word. And I think it's the idea here as he gives instructions to Timothy. Listen, you continue to practice these things. Grow in the Word of God that you will bear a witness to the community of faith that you, that you lead, that they might imitate you for their blessing and their encouragement. And verse 16 then points us to two very hopeful outcomes. For the overseer, the persistence in the faith and God's word and sound doctrine are marks of genuine salvation. Now, you may be confused when you read these words, so I want to be clear what they mean and what they don't mean. He says in verse 16, keep close watch on yourself and on the teachings. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, what Paul is not saying here is that by some act of the will or the effort of the overseer that, that the overseer then gains for themselves salvation. We know that salvation is through faith alone and not by works. So what does he mean here by saving yourself? Well, the, growing in God's word and sound doctrine are, is a mark of genuine salvation. So John chapter 8, Jesus said to the Jews who had who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Meaning the persistence of faith and continuing to grow in God's word is evidence of genuine salvation. So I think that's what he means here by you'll save yourself, demonstrating the truth and the genuineness of your faith. But then he also goes on and says, and your hearer. So does it mean that somehow the, the church's salvation is connected to or dependent upon the overseer? I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is that when the overseer walks faithfully before the Lord, growing in God's word and sound doctrine, 
devoting themselves to the public reading of Scripture, the exhortation and the teaching of God's Word, that there is a blessing for those who hear them, who are under their leadership. It doesn't mean that the overseer is the source of salvation. It means that the overseer is the agent of salvation. This is what I mean. By reading, preaching, by reading Scripture, preaching and exhorting Scripture and teaching Scripture, the lost will hear. And when the lost hear God's Word, God may use that to save them. Romans 10 verse 17 says, so, by faith, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The power to save is the word of God. And when those who are faithful to preach and teach it, faithfully preach and teach it, God uses that to save the hearers. Church, I don't know what the generations to come will bring. I do know that there are a lot of changes coming down just with cultural dynamics around us uh, to the church. And as we walk through those changes, what we must not do is abandon our calling to devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture, the exhortation of Scripture, to the teaching of Scripture. Because it is through those things, growing in God's Word and sound doctrine, that brings about salvation in the lost. Paul gives the example of bodily discipline and how it has some benefit. Several years ago, I decided to start running and there were several things that were motivating me. One of them was when I turned 40, <laughs> physically things just began to change. So strength that I just used to could count on from my youth was evaporating. Endurance that used to just be there because of youth was no longer there. And I just noticed there were some trends in my health that were not not encouraging. And so I wanted to, to, to reverse those things. And so I began to strive to run. Now, if you've not, you're not a runner, never done much of that. If you decide today, well, tomorrow I'm going to become a, a marathon uh, runner, that's great, but you probably won't run 26 miles tomorrow morning. In fact, if you've not run in a long time, when you get out and, you know, you get all dressed and you get ready to go and you get out in your front uh, street in front of your house and you take off down the block, you might make it a block. <laughs> and then your heart will begin to sound, feel like and sound like it's about to literally beat out of your chest. Your breath will become labored and you won't go very far. And that's the way most people start if you're out of shape and been living a sedentary lifestyle. And that's the way it was for me. And so I, I began and I would run as much as I could, walk some, run some. And, and of course, the nice thing is, as I continue to discipline myself, discipline meaning that on a regular schedule, regularly being out there and, and pressing and pushing my body, that the, 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 the amount of time and distance of running was becoming longer and the time of, of rest were becoming shorter. And of course, something wonderful happened eventually, not early, but eventually, what was something that was unpleasant became something that was extremely pleasant, pre ple pleasant. So when you start to run or start to do any exercise, it's mostly unpleasant, right? It doesn't, it doesn't feel good. It pressures you, it stresses you. But, but at some point when your endurance reaches that moment that then all of a sudden it's something you look forward to and you long for and you enjoy. But here's what I knew. I knew even when I reached that stage in, uh, in disciplining myself that at any moment, all the gains that I had made could be stolen. And I also knew that no matter how far I ran that day, that the prospect of being able to maintain long distance fast speeds was only going to diminish even with age, right? And so just the, the natural slowing down and, and weakening of the body with age meant that I, I couldn't maintain a, a high level forever. And more recently, I uh, developed an injury that took me off the road. And, uh, and one of the consequences of that was that all of the gains that I had gained, not all, but many of them evaporated rather quickly because the older you get, the faster your gains evaporate. That's what Paul is pointing to. Bodily gain has, bodily discipline has some benefit, but it can't hold on to it. You can't maintain it. You can't keep it. But godly discipline has a blessing for today 
and tomorrow. And that it's a blessing for your walk with the Lord today. It's a blessing for those who hear and are ministered to you by today. But the beauty of godly discipline, growing in God's word and in sound doctrine is that those things don't evaporate with death. They only get sweeter with death because Paul says they have a blessing in the present and in the glory to come. We're living in days that have celebrated the lack of discipline in our walk with the Lord. And I'm calling you church for the glory of God and the obedience to scripture. Discipline yourself for godliness. Discipline yourself in the growth in God's word and in sound doctrine. Not only for your own blessing, not only for your own blessing now, but for those around you's blessing, for those, to bless those around you and for the glory that is to come. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.